it's interesting that to me that we get to the law of God, and that's where we are. Is that chapter nineteen? Um, all the way this far, because really, there's been there's been aspects of it all the way through, and um, again, uh, I try to point this out from time to time, but and I mention it in praying, you know, we study this confession because we're a confessional church, meaning we hold to this confession, we take it seriously, we use it in our teaching. But a confession is simply a way to express what we believe about the Scriptures. It's not the Scriptures. You can burn these things and we never see another one. We have the Bible and that's all we need. But the truth is, every church, every belief system has a confession. Everybody has something they believe. You know, people say, well, we don't need this kind of stuff. We just need the Bible. Okay, well, tell me what you believe about Jesus in the Bible. And as soon as you start explaining what you, who you think Jesus is, you're being confessional. Huh. So you can't explain what you believe without being confessional. And so for all of church history, pretty much all of church history, and it even seems possibly in the New Testament, some of the things Paul talks about, like the things that were passed down from, um, from other believers, there was a, there's always been what the church believes in some kind of, in some kind of um, order that the church would know, right? I mean, you can't depend on memory. And I've said this a lot of times. I'm thankful to be in a confessional church with a confession that I believe in that I can hand to my kids, that my kids have. So if, if I drop dead tomorrow, um, they, they can go on the internet, they can see sermons I've written, they can get my computer. But really, they can say, well, here's what I really, here's what I really know Dad believed about the Bible. Because he told us, this is what he believes. I mean, pretty much, okay, there'll be a little place here and there that I might say, nah, I'm not sure about that. But for the most part, this is, uh, you know, like 60 pages of what I believe major about all the major things in the Bible, right? And so, that's why I think it's such a great thing for us to teach is because I can stand up here and teach you my opinion about everything and then that's what you're going to have and that's what ends up happening a lot of churches in fact I heard somebody say this week I hadn't thought about it most churches their confessions are written by their pastors John Piper John MacArthur their confessions they use in their church were written by them so they have a confession that's based on those two men these confessions have stood the test of time for 500 years written by men that obviously we don't know, but they're based on confessions and, and, and teachings that were even prior to that. And so I like that idea better than y'all having a confession based on me because that would not be good. You know, I mean, just the, the, the theology and things I've believed in the last 10 years have changed so dramatically and drastically. And what I love about this is that, okay, sometimes, especially if you read it in the original English, you'd say, man, this is kind of hard to, what are they saying? But this is why we're studying it, too. What are they saying? Because it's teaching us what the Bible says about these different doctrines, right? Who is Jesus? Who is God? What is creation? What do we believe about the law of God? What do we believe about assurance? What do we believe about salvation? All those things. And so that's why we get to something like this. And uh, it's important because I, I was kind of uh, tripping myself out early when I was praying I was saying things like well that wasn't clear when I'm praying I better go back and change I don't know if y'all were catching me <laughs> we are under the law well the Bible says you're not under the law So, but um, we need to know this because that's what a lot of people say well the law that's no good I mean that's over that was, uh, it's been replaced by grace 
Well, so we're going to look at the law of God. What is the law of God? What is still, um, what law are we still to accountable to? Because we are accountable to the law of God. We can't keep it. But that's why I said somebody kept it. And the truth is, uh, we are saved by keeping the law. It's just that we don't keep the law. Christ kept the law. And we are saved by works, but it's not our works. It's his works. So we find that out when we study the law. And a lot of people want to say, oh, we, don't, we don't even use the Old Testament. Uh, Church of Christ, you know, they say that the Old Testament is a guide, but we use the New Testament for teaching. Well, then Jesus was a real bad teacher because, you know, he didn't have a New Testament. He used the Old Testament to teach the truth about himself. And he counted it as, I mean, he said, the Bible often the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and said, thus, says the, thus said the Lord. This is the word of God. And so the law is important. So um, let's look. We're not going to get, but we might get to the second section. This, this is probably going to take us a little while. But um, I think it's important that we talk about this and talk about it slowly and make sure we, we got it. And some people are absent. I know they want to catch up. So let's just read these first two sections, and then we'll talk about those and whatever else comes up. So God gave Adam a law of, of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept, precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him, that is Adam, and all of his descendants, that's us too, to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. Any of those words need explaining? I mean, we understand personal. All of us have a personal and total there's no, nothing lacking. We have to obey all the law that God has given, this law that's written in the heart. And very exactly, we can't say, we can't take some of it out or reword it like Satan did, right? Surely God hasn't said. Surely he didn't mean this. No, it's exactly the way God said it. And also it's perpetual, meaning it never ends. And God promised life if Adam fulfilled it, but threatened death if he broke it. And... He gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. So this is amazing to me. And, I, and we'll, we'll get into this more some. But for people to continue to worship the free will the way they do, Adam was given the ability and the power to keep the law, and he couldn't. And somehow we think that we still can. It's amazing. Impossible. Humans can't do it. God and man can do it. Man cannot do it. That's why Christ is called the second Adam. He is the perfect Adam. He did what Adam, the first one, couldn't do. And that same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written in two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six our duty to humanity. So, basically, a real quick summation. God gave the law to Adam. It was written in his heart. He created Adam with the law of God written in his heart. But then he gave him an, uh, sort of a, um, not an extra, but an external, um, additional law. He gave him a chance to see if he really could keep it. And that was the law um, specifically not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course we know he failed that. 
So basically, we're getting to the point again, if you remember I showed you how the first part of the confession talks about things like creation and God and the Word of God. The Bible, creation, God. And then it gets to justification, you know, how we are redeemed. And then it gets to, well, and there's a section about who Christ is, of course. And then it gets to um, how we react or what effect salvation justification has upon us. And so we're still there. And so what we're talking about is obedience. And obedience is a very important word throughout the confession. In fact, 29 times the word obedience is used in the confession from beginning to end. Once in the appendix. In fact, the very first sentence of chapter 1 of the confession says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So for people to say, oh, y'all are Calvinists, y'all are Reformed, y'all don't really believe in uh, holiness, and you don't have to, you don't have to, salvation is not really worked out in your life because y'all just believe it's all predestined and ordained by God. Well, that's, nothing will be further from the truth. That's never been the truth. In fact, our forefathers, the men that wrote these confessions, I mean, if you look back in Baptist history, Reformed Baptist history, I mean, they absolutely taught obedience and holiness. But they also taught what we've been looking at for a while. We can't obey. We can't be faithful. And when we fail, we look to Christ because he's faithful and he's obedient. But we never have an excuse to not do what we know is right. We're always called obedience. And so I, I thought that was pretty interesting. I saw that and, and put that in for you because 29 times, it's pretty important. And the very first sentence of the whole thing includes the word obedience. In fact, the word obedience appears in the, in the confession in relation to the doctrine of God, predestination, covenant, work of Christ, justification, sanctification, faith, good works, assurance. We just finished this chapter of the law of God in the gospel section, in Christian liberty, worship, oaths, vows, church, and baptism. So obedience in, in, including all those sections. And isn't it amazing that even in the section about predestination, the, the thought of obedience is included. So we're predestined not only to be conformed to the likeness and image of God, but we are also created and predestined to walk in the works which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in. Even our obedience is ordained of God. And I think that's important. And, and I was sharing earlier today, one of, one of my friends this weekend I was with was talking about somebody, somebody came up to him and said, well, why should we even, if God's in control, then why should we even worry about doing anything? It's all going to happen the way it's going to happen. And my friend, who, who's not where I am theologically, told him, well, that's fatalism. You can't believe in fatalism. And, he said, and of course, then he said, because we have choices. We, have, we can make choices. I said, well, I agree with you on this. Uh, fatalism and sovereignty is not the same thing. Because fatalism is, you know, case or us or whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No, what's going to happen is exactly what God's ordained to happen. And God is sovereign and his decrees come to pass. That's different than fatalism. And we're free to believe and free to choose. Okay, but we, you know, I always like to say our chooser is broken. But God fixes that in redemption. And sometimes we choose better than we did by the spirit of grace. But the truth is, uh, man is responsible. God is sovereign, man is responsible. Fatalism is not an option. You can't just say like, 
I'm not going to fool with it because it's just going to happen the way it's going to happen. No. God has ordained not only the ends, but he's also ordained the means, right? We talked about this. Uh, Brian and I were talking about this earlier. You can't say, I'm not going to pray because, I mean, God's going to do what he wants to do anyway. I can't change his mind. No, but you pray because that's an ordained method of God by which he does his works. And plus, it changes us, and it conforms us to his likeness. You can't say, well, when I preach the gospel, God's already determined who's going to be saved. They're going to be saved anyway because he's ordained the way people get saved that he's chosen is through preaching of the gospel. He chooses and ordains the ends and the means so we don't get to pick and choose. And so to say that people like us in our church teach um, some kind of fatalistic, uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, or y'all don't believe in obedience and the Christian walk and holiness, it's not true. And I, and I love the confession is very clear to point that out. And so, much like the entirety of the confession, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, being structured, this chapter has a structure and a flow too. The first five paragraphs, and we're only going to do with, deal with a look at the first two, the first five paragraphs deal with the law and the history of redemption. In other words, God's whole history of dealing with man since the fall. We've already looked at some of that. The final two sections focus on the place of the law in the life of the believer. So we'll look at that eventually. But again, it highlights for us the fact that the life of the believer grows from the life of the church and not the other way around. And I know I've been emphasizing this a lot because I've just this, this keeps um, just coming to the forefront of my mind. For too long, we've taught people Hey, if you'll do your quiet time and, and be good and pray a lot and study, then when you come to church, we'll have great worship. And I think the Bible and our, and our confession points this out in this structure. The correct way to think about this is gather with the church, worship God, sit under the preaching of the word of God and the means of grace, whether it's baptism, preaching, uh, praying, and taking communion. And from that will grow whatever personal life you have. Isn't that opposite of what, that's the opposite of what I've been taught. But it makes so much more sense because I'm supposed to receive grace together. This idea of personal devotion is not really scriptural. It's not wrong to have personal devotion. It's not wrong to read the Bible, and you need to. But we've emphasized that to the exclusion of, to where we've made church kind of not important. Well, I mean, I come to church, but hey, do your quiet times. You've got to get them quiet times in. I mean, that's wonderful. Do your quiet time. But if you got to miss quiet time or church during the week, miss your quiet time come to church. And let God pour out his grace on you. I, I just think that's correct. Now, plenty of people probably don't, and some of you may not think that's correct, but I, I, I really believe that the supernatural um, gathering of God's people or God and his supernatural effect or love, I don't know how to describe it, pouring out of grace upon the people gathered there's nothing else like it and um, that's why I just believe in emphasizing that I'm not beating people over the head and saying you, you gotta come to church as if it's some kind of legalistic if you want to be right with God come to church I'm telling you you won't be right with God until you come to church and you, you don't want to miss that you know and I know y'all get that so again the, I think the confession is highlighting that for us Hey, the life of the believer flows from 
Just like our, we have no life and no good works until God awakens us from the dead, gives us new life, and, and, and uh, the Spirit of God within us to walk in these works that we are created to walk in, and then the life of the believer is something to do. It's something that we do, um, and we don't do it in our own power. And so the same way here, the law of God, it, it's showing us that um, the life of the believer, to believe the law is going to come after you understand why God gave the law and how we broke it and how we can't keep it, how Christ kept it, and so forth, right? And so on. So, uh, anybody want to say anything before I move forward? I didn't know I was going to preach, but hey. All right, section one, um, the moral law, obviously, right? Do you understand the difference between the moral law written on the heart of man and the written law that comes later that we talked about through Moses? And we'll get into that more. So the moral law of God is inscribed on the heart of man. Everybody has the moral law of God, even people who do not know Christ. And the New Testament points this out. Hey, if, if the Gentile, they're, they're meaning by Gentile the, the lost people, uh, I think I might have that somewhere um, before I misquote it. I, maybe I didn't write it down. But if the Gentile does uh, lives according to the law or obeys the law, even though he doesn't have the law, then it becomes a law to him. Why? Because it comes from his heart. It's, it's written in his heart. And he's obeying the law even though he doesn't have the written law to look at and read because God is putting it on his heart. And this comes from... Uh, Genesis one twenty seven. Does somebody want to read that? We'll see how. Uh, and also Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Genesis one twenty seven. Okay. Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay. So that idea, and I'm looking back at the confession here, it says, uh, get down here to it. So God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart, and then a specific precept, do not eat of the tree of good and evil, of the knowledge of good and evil. This written in his heart, written in his heart thing, that's kind of like we know murder's wrong. There's guilt for certain things that we do that we try. That, that was kind of the basis of that. Exactly. Conscience. Yes. Yeah, because somehow we, like you said, now some people seem to not have that, but I think ultimately every human does have a sense of some right and wrong. Yeah. You know, they've come. We come here with it. Now that don't mean everybody abides by it, because again, even when you know that, when you're taught that it's wrong to transgress, you transgress. But yes, exactly right. And so that's why Ecclesiastes says. Um, Man was made upright. In other words, he came here with moral integrity. The law is written in his heart. He knew to obey God. Even before God gave him this um, positive law, which was do not eat. You can eat of everything here. You can do what you want with this, with eating here, except do not eat the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Before that was given to him, he already knew he should obey God. And he already knew that he shouldn't uh, do certain things and he was free to do certain things. I think that's the best way to put it. He had a moral integrity. 
in the standard of obedience was inscribed on Adam's heart as he came forth from the hand of God. Um, I think you see this. In fact, the, these words here um, in the first section about, I think I moved to the second section. No. Uh, once I just wrote read, where did that go to? Specific precept. Oh, well, the, what you just read from Ecclesiastes too, this uprightness of heart. Um, I want to see if it's in the next section. No, no. If you look back at Colossians 3.10, somebody wants to see if I have that. Yeah, Colossians 3.10, also Ephesians 4.24, somebody has it. Colossians 3.10 says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Yes, he's been renewed in knowledge. What renewed Adam... Renewed in knowledge, not renewed in flesh. No. And what he, what Adam was, the way Adam was made originally, this uprightness of heart, this moral integrity... That's what God restores in redemption. It's a beautiful thing. He, he, he remakes him. I think Ephesians 20, uh, 4 and 24 might say near the same thing. See anybody got that? Yeah, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteousness and purity of the truth. Yeah, in righteousness. Remaking him. And what I was thinking of is if you look back with those two verses... And you don't have to do this. Wait a minute. For some reason I'm really struggling here. If you look all the way back to section 4 in creation. I mean chapter 4 section 2. Um, it's talking about the way God made uh, humanity. He made the male and female with rational, with rational and immortal souls. Making them suited for that life lived unto God for which they were created. They were made in the image of God being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. But yet they lost that. And that's in chapter 4, section 2. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. But they still could transgress the law because they were left the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And so I love that Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 point us to the fact that what God's doing in redemption, which Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 is talking about, is restoring what was in the garden. And where he had made man to begin with. He's building that back. Somebody said one time, all of human history was mankind trying to get back into the garden. But he can't let himself back in. And the only way he's in is God himself. The one who put him out. Brings him in. So, just want to point that out. Let's see. Uh, let's look to at Romans 2.15. This might be the one that I was trying to quote earlier and didn't do a good job of. Romans 2 is a great chapter. 
about the law of God. But as somebody pointed out, there's no gospel in Romans 2. The people who go to Romans 2 and try to find gospel, it's not there. It's about the law. Whoever, debt, whoever wants to live by the law has to do the law. Uh, 2.15 Oh, yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier. The Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I think if you back up one there, it says, Why do the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires? They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, but it's written on their hearts. So just trying to reemphasize that whole idea that this is the way God made man. He had a law. He didn't have to have it written because it was in his heart. He knew it. He knew obedience was right, and then God um, gave him this opportunity to prove himself, and of course he couldn't. So from the moment that Adam became a living soul, he was made in the image of God and possessed in himself the necessary knowledge to serve and please his creator. But then he was given this external or positive law. If you remember, uh, I think we talked about this somewhere back, that positive law means uh, anything that was written not in the heart of man, but that God gave later. In addition to the moral law, when we refer to the moral law, of course, as that which is written in our hearts, the things that we know that God later puts down in the Ten Commandments. That is the moral law, summed up. So he had this written on his heart. And this was done to perhaps, we had it written on his heart, but then he was given an additional law, perhaps to demonstrate allegiance to God alone. The testing of Adam's obedience to the whole law and the one specific prohibition, do not eat of this tree. And the positive law was rooted in the moral law. But disobedience to the positive law was a violation of the moral law. So since God gave him this law, he already knew, Adam already knew, I have to obey God. That was written in his heart. He knew it. He was born with it. And so God says, I'll give you a chance to prove and be obedient to the law that's in your heart. And here's the, here's the way. Don't eat of that one tree. But because Adam made of that tree and violated that positive law, what he really did was broke the moral law. And that's the problem. In fact, the Ten Commandments... All the law written to Israel, the, the, the um, ceremonial laws of sacrifice, the judicial laws of how they were to govern themselves, all those laws are built on the moral law. So in, to disobey anything that God said was to disobey the moral law. Always has been. Now we know that the moral, the, 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 and we'll talk about this some later, the judicial law and the ceremonial law are gone. Ceremonial law disappeared because Jesus fulfilled all of that. You don't have to sacrifice cows and goats anymore because Jesus made one sacrifice forever for sin. We don't need a judicial law anymore because Jerusalem, uh, and in essence, um, that earthly um, kingdom of God's people in Israel was destroyed, was wiped out. No longer do they need judicial law. So we at least in, in, uh, as Baptists and as Reformed Baptists, we believe that the moral law is still in existence and we are still accountable to it, but we are not accountable to the ceremonial law because Christ fulfilled it and the judicial law 
because it's been eradicated when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. And that law no longer applies. Now, except for, uh, and it says right there, maybe I will go a little bit further and see where I'm at here. I know it says that somewhere right here. Uh, okay, let, let's look at three just so I don't confuse you. In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concern worship by prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. In other ways, they reveal various instructions about moral duties. Since all of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the end of the new order, until the end, only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, the only lawgiver. He was empowered by faith to do this. So, um, and he also gave various judicial laws which ceased at the time of their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of this institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. And we'll try to talk about that more later if that doesn't make sense. The, the general principle uh, of the, the judicial law. In, in fact, a lot of our law here comes from the general principle of the judicial law of Israel. A lot of our law codes are written from that. So, you know, we don't stone an adulteress anymore, but we do realize that adultery is rooted, is rooted in the breaking of the moral law. And we do want to hold people accountable to that, but we don't drag them out of the street and hand them with rocks till they're dead because we're not under that. Christ came and we're not under that law in that sense. Okay. Where my notes go? So, given the law in these forms, the moral law written in the heart, and then a positive law externally to keep that moral law, Adam and all his posterity, it says, were bound to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience to God. And then Adam was endued with the power and ability to keep the law and granted every resource necessary to overcome temptation set before him. But he couldn't. Why could he not? He couldn't because he wasn't God. And I don't know. Why does evil exist? It's a great question. But if we look back at free will and what does it mean and what is it chapter 9 I think we discover a little bit he says humanity in the state of innocence had a freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well pleasing to God yet this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it but then by falling from the state of sin he completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin, so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. So basically, what I want you to understand, and we'll talk about this a lot more in the days to come, when Adam fell, we all fell. Because Adam, in a sense, was our, we refer to something, we refer to this as federal headship. He was our head. He represented all humanity. 
And Romans 5 is a great place to read about this. Adam fell, and we all fell. So Adam was endowed with this liberty and ability and power to obey, yet he didn't. And because he didn't, that plunged all of us into what in the reform world we call depravity. We are born into a state of not good, not choosing God, not even wanting God. In fact, we're dead spiritually, right? We, um, that, is referred to, that doctrine is referred to as the doctrine of original sin, right? Original sin is not Adam falling. Original sin is Adam fell, and in Adam we all fell. And we all have that in us. So what's different now, and the reason we can't really say we have the same, and some people will say this. Some people will say when Christ died, he restored Adam to what he was in the garden, and now you have the ability still, free will ability to choose good or bad. And I think, and what our confession teaches, and what I think the Bible teaches is that no, when Adam fell, we fell and lost the ability to that kind of liberty and ability. Because we are now dead. And what we need is a supernatural act of God to resurrect us and um, to regenerate us from death to life so that we can believe and that we will want to obey and can obey. And the only people who can do that are the people that God calls out of death and to life. So the question is not who wants to be saved. The question is who can be saved. Those who God calls out of death to life. Now we preach the gospel and say whosoever will come. Well who will come? Those who can. Does that make sense? Who can? Those who are raised from death to life. Those who the father brings to the son. As John chapter 6 says, all the Father brings to me, Jesus said, they will come to me. And all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out, but will raise them up the last day. And so what I'm saying is when we, when we tell people that and we preach this gospel that says, hey, God created Adam and he fell into sin because he, he had liberty and power to keep the law, but he couldn't and he didn't. And in him we fell. And now we're all born into this life, as the Bible says, conceived in sin, brought forth in sin, go astray from the womb, none seek after God, none are good, no, not one. Yet, I say that, and then I talk about Christ, who God's Son, God in the flesh, came, did obey the law, did what Adam couldn't do, never transgressed the law, and never broke the law, did, again, what Adam couldn't do, yet went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, as a sinner, though he never sinned, and God poured his wrath upon him, he died, but rose again. And ascended to the Father. If you believe that. Then that means God has brought you. From death to life. Because even though the Bible says. The demons believe and tremble. I don't think they believe all that. They might know that happened. But they don't believe that happened for them. I heard somebody. A great podcast last week. Talk about this. You know we've used. The devils believe and tremble. To threaten people. And scare people. Because they don't believe enough. And that's right. Not, that's not what that passage is about. And James is trying to highlight the fact that because of what Christ has done, you believe. And if you believe, that can never be taken away from you. It might be, it might be weak at times, but it will always come back. It's more than just saying, oh yeah, I, Jesus, I've heard about him and what he did. 
the demons believed that, and they knew that they're going to be crushed by him, but the demons didn't believe that he took the wrath of God in their place and died for their sin, that they could be redeemed. That's different. And so, all these things bring us back to this idea that God gave a law, and that law is still intact. And it's the moral law of God written on our hearts, and it's summed up in the Ten Commandments. And we are accountable to that. We can't dismiss that. None of that, none of those Ten Commandments, the first, the first four, our, our duty to God, whether it's um, to, to believe in Him and have no other gods, to never have any idols and make any idols of any kind, to not take His name in vain, to honor our father and mother, and then on to our duty to man, to not murder, to not steal, to not lie, to not commit adultery, and not want something that doesn't belong to us. All those commandments are there and still in place. And if we can keep every one of them, then we, like Adam, can be saved from that. But we can't. And the New Testament points that out. If you've broken one law, see, this is what happened to Adam. You say, well, all he did was fail not one time not to... He ate the thing he told him not to eat. Yeah, but in breaking the law, external positive law, he broke the moral law. When you break the moral law, you break the entire moral law. And that's the problem, as, as the New Testament points out. If, you're, if you've broken the law at one point, you've broken all the law. Because you've become a lawbreaker. And now you're a transgressor of God's law. You have broken God's law. How on earth can you restore that? You can't restore yourself to that. You can't make enough good and do enough nice things and then try to keep the law enough. Because even in trying to keep the law to restore yourself, that's probably sinful because there's a, there's a, a selfish goal behind, behind why you're keeping the law. And that's sinful. It's not to obey God and love Him. It's to fix what you broke. And there you go sinning again. And so the only option is for God to do something, which is what He's done. And our only hope is to... Uh, fall at the feet of Christ and say, I, I have nothing to, you know, that song, nothing in my hands can I bring. Only to the cross I cling. I have nothing. Nothing of my own. No righteousness of my own. Um, because I'm a lawbreaker. And I know I am. We fell in Adam, but we're still obligated to the law. The moral law. And we have to keep it. But we can't. But Christ did. And that's the good news of the gospel. I mean, and that's why we preach the law. We teach people, you are a lawbreaker. There is a law, God's law, and it's important. But hey, Adam didn't keep it, and, and nobody since Adam except Christ kept it. And so our hope is that uh, not to put our hope in man, but to put our hope in Jesus, the God-man, who kept it for us. There's so many other things I want to say. We'll, we'll try to get to them um, in the next several weeks. Anybody want to say anything else? I talked almost the whole time. I didn't I didn't break much to let y'all talk. Anybody? I do think it's interesting. I've had people ask me so many times when sharing the gospel with somebody, what about these remote people like out in the middle of Africa that have never heard the name Jesus Christ before. Right. What about them? Why, you know, they can't say they can't be expected to know who Jesus Christ is because they've never heard. 
but I've, I've always thought Romans 1 and 2 really covers that so well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If God put it within our hearts, even if you don't know the name of Jesus Christ, yes. if you put it within us as well. And they have, they have broken it, and, and they're accountable to it. Yeah. Inexcusable. Yes. And, of course, the uh, a good way to think about that, too, not only what you said, because that's absolutely correct, but if you're saying that the best thing to do is keep people ignorant, yeah. then just for, stop doing missions, and let's don't tell them. You know, when you have children, put them away somewhere and don't ever let them hear about Christ, and that way they won't be accountable. But that's not what the Bible says. Romans 2 is clear. Yeah. No, everybody's accountable. And so we got to tell them the gospel. Because the only hope for the people in the remotest parts of the world is the gospel. Absolutely. Yeah. It's good stuff. Everybody's quiet tonight. It's exhausting. We've concluded that we're all lawbreakers. Y'all did? In the children's class? Kids are innocent. That's right. Until they get to the age of accountability. You know, uh, I know I've told somebody all this, but not too long ago I had to do a funeral for a, uh, Lord, this baby was, what, 16 weeks? Born premature born way premature and of course not alive they did service and I preached the best I could about the doctrine of um, I really without saying it all I, I tried to teach the, the reform doctrine of infant death and um, afterwards the granddaddy of the little baby that passed told somebody he didn't like what I said because um, that baby didn't have no sin and I didn't, I didn't want to say, I mean, the, the daddy of the baby was the one telling me. And, of course, it wasn't a time for me. I wasn't trying to win any arguments at, right after the funeral. But I said, well, you know, we'll talk about that later. I'm sorry that he was upset. And I was telling one of my friends about it. I was like, man, this guy said he didn't like what I said because he didn't believe that baby had any sin. And my friend said, well, then why did he die? And I said, man, if I'd have just had you there with me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because that is the wage of sin, is death. And again, you know, I wasn't saying anything by any means ugly, or I was just trying to point out that um, the goodness of God and the way that God is just and does what's right. And to the parents, hey, you know what you can trust? That God's good and that He has this is under His control. I can't explain it, but. Um, that's the hope we all. That's the only hope we have. I can tell you a bunch of stuff that I don't know to be true if it makes you feel better, but what I do know is true is the Bible says God is good and he does what's right. So. If you go on Paul Washer's uh, app or website, he's, he does a sermon on that and uh, about babies and children dying. And he, the title of the sermon is The Most Hated Sermon I've Ever Given. <laughs> <laughs> he said he's got hate mail, death threats, everything for what he preached on. Oh, I'm sure. How babies have sin and everything. Mm-hmm. People don't want to think that. No. But again, the hope is Christ and not 
If you think people are innocent, then you don't believe this. Doc- and that's the only reason I'm pointing this out right now. Then you don't believe what I, the, these doctrines we just talked about in the, in the original sin. Because they're not innocent. They need redemption. And, and I think God would, I trust he takes care of that however he's supposed to. But I'm not going to make up something to make people feel better. But well, it won't make them feel better, I don't think. Yeah. If you're making it up. But you know, there's places in the Bible that seem to believe the people of God have always trusted that God did what was right and took care of dying babies. Yeah. Well, like in, when David was fasting and, and over his child that was sick, and you know he professed that hope that I can't bring him back, but I can go to him. That seems to be a pretty good hope that he thought God was going to take care of that newborn child or very young child but you know anyways another whole subject anything else y'all good I hope y'all have a blessed week and uh guess we'll be here Sunday Lord willing I gotta start the high priestly prayer the garden of Gethsemane and all that so it may take a little while I don't know exactly how I wanna approach it there's a lot there Especially when you move to John. Alrighty. Well, I'm going to pray and then uh, y'all have a good rest of the week. Father, we're so thankful for your word and for um, things like our confession, um, writings that help teach us um, about who you are and the way you operate and have operated throughout history, the history of redemption. And I pray that you would continue to teach your people. And Lord, just guide us and direct us and uh, give us ears to hear your word. And Lord, just um, grow us together as your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.